Well, good morning again, and I just want to say another happy Mother's Day to every single woman in this place, those of you who have carried a child in your womb, those of you who have brought another woman's biologically born child into your heart and into your home, those of you who haven't birthed a child but have a whole list of children that you have mentored and mothered running behind you, and those who may be in pursuit of motherhood. It can be a delicate day, but one that is worth the time to pause and to celebrate and for us to pause and celebrate and thank those women who have invested so much in our lives. So happy Mother's Day to all of you ladies. Today, as Bodhi said, we are launching into a brand new series called Love Lies. And the purpose of this series is to tackle the cultural myths that we believe about love, sex, marriage, and singleness. We're going to be diving deep into these topics, some of which will be a little bit uncomfortable and maybe press on lies you have believed, points of struggle for your lives and for your relationships, and hopefully challenge you to think in new ways and break old patterns. So all that to say, it should be a fun few weeks, all right? In addition to our Sunday morning time together, we know that we're going to be touching on some difficult topics, some things that we can't go really deep into in the 30 to 55 minutes, depending on who's preaching, whatever week may be. Um, We can't go all the way in, and so we want to provide some resources for you as well. So on cc.guide, our digital guide, um, there's a tab at the top that is just Love Lies Resources. There's a list of books um, that we have read, that we endorse, that we are getting a lot of material from here. There's um, the class, uh, one of the classes that we went through in our season of Lent a few years ago together that you can um, enter into and watch. There is a place where you can contact a pastor if you need to meet up, if you are in crisis, if your marriage is in crisis or whatever the case may be. So we want to make sure that we're starting the conversation here, but kind of keeping it going throughout the week. So make sure to take part and um, take advantage of those resources while they are up. So how to kick off this series, how to set a foundation and really dive in. Today's myth or today's lie is this, love is a feeling. I was 15 years old uh, when this guy that I knew, because small town and everybody knows everyone, he had in fact dated one of my um, closest friends um, about a year or so before that for quite a while. But I was 15 when this guy caught my eye. And as a cheerleader at the time, I had an unobstructed view of the sidelines of the football players. And let's just say he could wear a uniform, all right? He was attractive and shy, and he had sideburns for days, and he had a hat that he always wore, and it was pulled down and curved around so low to to cover his eyes. I didn't know it at the time, but now I knew that it was tried to, it was an attempt to combat his uh, social awkwardness um, by literally hiding from everyone with the bill of his hat. My friend and I started scheming about how we could both be in homecoming together before she graduated, and Bodhi was my ticket into homecoming. Side note, I realize that cheerleader, football player, small town, high school sweethearts is like the most cliche story in the book, like we might as well be a country music song, but we're dealt the cards we're dealt with, okay? I wish it was a little bit more original, but this is what you guys get today, okay? This is the story. Anyway, we started talking at the time. We were voted into homecoming, yes, and officially started dating November of 2000. Yes, 
2000. The rest is history, as they say. I didn't take, it didn't take long for me to realize that, man, this, this is different. I feel a little bit short of breath every time he walks in the room when I'm near him. My heart pounds a little bit. I'm trying to like rearrange my schedule to align more, the, more with his so that we can be together. I wanted to hold his hand as much as possible. I was falling in love. In love. What does that even mean? Love has become kind of a junk drawer word that we throw around for so many things that it can and so often does lose its meaning in the moment. I love God, I love my husband, I love my kids, and I love Mexican food. (laughs) It's so broad and generic that we can, and most of the time, lose the meaning. So how should we define love? To many of us, love is passion for a thing. Like I just said about Mexican food, love is the word that I'm drawn to because of my passionate feelings about chips and salsa and queso and enchiladas, all right? I got passionate feelings and opinions about this thing, all right? And when we aim this word at people, we typically mean the same thing. This person draws out in me strong feelings of emotion. When we say we love someone, we are typically speaking of how they make us feel, about how they, the emotions that they stir up inside of us when they are around, how they make us feel happy and brave and carefree and alive in a different kind of way than we knew before them. Love by this definition is passive. It's something that happens to you. Think of that phrase that I just used when talking about Bodie and I in high school, I was falling in love. Like I just tripped and fell off of a cliff. Like I had no control. And I'm not here to deny the reality of this kind of love or maybe better worded emotion. It's an incredible time and an incredible feeling. And I would guess that the majority of us in this room have experienced this kind of rush or a similar one. But there is a side to this sort of framework being our only framework and our only definition to love. Because if we can fall into it, then we can fall out of it. Jonathan Haidt in The Happiness Hypothesis says this, As I see it, the modern myth of true love involves these beliefs. True love is passionate love that never fades. If you are in true love, you should marry that person. If love ends, you should leave that person because it was not true love. And if you can find the right person, you will have true love forever. You might not believe this myth yourself, particularly if you're older than 30. But many young people in Western nations are raised on it, and it acts as an ideal that they unconsciously carry with them, even if they scoff at it. Listen, I love Disney and a good happily ever after and a good rom-com, although RIP rom-coms, like where have they all gone? Are there no good ones anymore, like the ones of old? I know that that makes me sound like a thousand years old to talk about that, but they're, am I right? They're not good anymore, right? Okay, yes. So, but like he said, consciously or not, this is an ideal that we carry with us about love and specifically about romantic love. Passionate love is a drug, And I don't mean that as a turn of phrase. I mean an actual drug. Its symptoms and the way our brain fires off overlap with those of heroin. But therein lies the problem because no drug can keep you continuously high. So what happens when those feelings fade? 
And those of you who are here at the beginnings, maybe just dating, just engaged, just married, enjoy your high. I, I know I said that. I didn't mean that condescendingly, okay? Really. Enjoy your high because it's great and it's beautiful and wonderful, but spoiler alert, it will fade. It will fade. Our brains and bodies are literally incapable of sustaining those intense feelings. And so what happens when those feelings fade? What happens when someone else begins to make you feel even more alive? If you're dating, then the conversation looks a little bit different. Although there's much to be said about this that I think we miss in dating when it comes to finding that perfect, quote, one. More on that myth in a few weeks. But today our topic is love, but my primary lens for this conversation is marriage. The covenantal union that God created and designed for his glory and our good. So what happens when you don't feel those feelings We don't feel that love for the person that you made this kind of commitment to. Before we answer that and really bust this myth about love, let's talk about our main context for love today and look at the very beginning, the first marriage. The story of the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. The first wedding of all time with Adam and Eve, and then Revelation ends with the wedding of heaven and earth. In the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, we see the 30,000-foot view of creation. And then in Genesis 2, we zoom in a little bit more. And so we're going to read Genesis 2 this morning. Then the Lord God formed a man, from the, a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In Genesis 2, as I said, we have the second version of the creation story. It's more zoomed in, and we see Adam trying to find his match. And God says that it is, quote, not good for man to be alone, and he creates his counterpart, woman. We have all of the creation story up until this point working like a song or a poem because it is telling the story of creation and God repeating over and over again like the last line of a repeating chorus, it is good, it is good. 
And this is the first time that God says something is not good. And so why is it not good? First, Adam is alone. He says that in the phrase, it's not good for you to be alone. Adam or man was created to bear the image of the Trinitarian community that we call God, Father, Son, Spirit. We were created with community in our DNA, and it is not good that we are alone. And the second reason is Adam needs help. It's a practical reason. God has, Adam is called to take care of the garden. And we're not talking about your backyard raised planters here. Think more like untamed national forest, all right? Miles and miles of untapped potential. This is not a job that can be done alone. Adam needs help. And so God creates a helper suitable for him. Now, I'm not going to dive. There's so much we could do here. I'm not going to dive too far deep. I'm going to just dive a little bit. Let's talk about the word helper here, because if you're anything like me, you might start to squirm a little bit in your seat. When you hear the word helper, it sounds a little condescending in this, in this um, instance, but that's not what it sounds like. Ladies, y'all know I got you. All right, so hang on just a second. The word helper here is azer. And this is how I heard it explained one time. The word azer isn't really help. It's help. All right? That's different. It's a battle term. So when God looks and says there's no helper, he doesn't mean, oh, there's no helper. Um, We need like someone to do the dishes or the laundry or help keep the books. All right? No, he said, Adam needs help. All right? We know that it is translated this way because of how it was used in other times in scripture. Azer is used in other areas when Israel needed help and they were calling in on an ally nation. But the vast majority of the time that it is used in other places in scripture is in reference to God. When Israel is losing a battle, they need God to come and help. They need their Azer. A helper is not an employee or a personal assistant or someone that you boss around. A helper is an equal. Genesis uses the adjective suitable, meaning on the same level. We are the same, but uniquely different. We are partners. We each have a calling to live out together because it is not good for us to be alone. And so we see this male, female, Adam and Eve created and brought together in marriage. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to get married. There are ways to up close and vulnerable relationships without marriage. Jesus was single, much more on singleness next week. But as I said, today's lens is marriage. So there we see it in black and white, the first wedding created and officiated by God. And this marriage wasn't just a one-off. It was and is a template for all marriages. Just think about those last few lines for just a second that we just read in Genesis 2. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam didn't have a father or a mother to leave. And it's not like Eve had a whole lot of other options in the world at the moment. (laughs) This is the creational intent for marriage, the template for how it was created to work and flourish. It is not good for us to be alone. We need each other. We need community and co-creators and mission partners. And the vessel of marriage is a sacred space for that to flourish. 
because we're not only placed together, we are united together in a way that is specifically unique to any other kind of relationship on earth. John Mark Homer in his book, Loveology, says this. In the wedding ceremony, God says, they become one flesh. That word one is ichad in Hebrew. It is a graphic, weighty word. When you combine it with flesh, it basically means fused together at the deepest levels. And the exact same word is used for God. The ancient Hebrews had a prayer called the Shema that was the epicenter of Israel's faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Ichad. God is fused together at the deepest levels, and in marriage we catch glimpses, hints, shadows of this kind of oneness. Fused together at the deepest levels. What a beautifully haunting sentence about the bond of marriage. But even that phrase, bond of marriage, makes so many people nervous. It cues up some of the old sitcom narratives of the old ball and chain references, the pictures of being tied down and a lack of freedom. Because we are allergic in our culture today to any sort of constraint. To be held back from what we feel or believe to be true is the worst kind of sin against humanity. Constraint is an assault on my freedom, and if I am limited in any way, I must not be happy or able to thrive. Notice the language here is all egocentric. What is good for me is the ultimate test, the lens from which all questions need to be answered. About 15 years ago or so, um, my mom and sister-in-law and I um, started a wedding business. We had done our wedding like DIY and then some family members and some friends and we started accumulating all this stuff and it was like, okay, we either need to go into business or we need to sell this stuff. And so we decided to go into business. And so we've been doing it for a lot of years. We coordinated for a lot of years, but mainly focused on uh, floral and design and stuff. All that to say, I've been to a lot of weddings in the last 15 years. And there are two things that no matter how many times I go and have been a part of weddings that never get old to me. The first is watching the groom's face when the doors in the back open or while the bride is walking down the aisle. I'm the one person that's turned this way when everyone's looking at the bride. I love watching the groom and his face. And the second thing is the vows the time when we sh- the, the husband and wife share the vows together. It is such a sacred space and a sacred uh, time. It's like ancient and so holy every single time, especially the traditional vows. The covenant of marriage is so unique because it is both vertical and horizontal. Notice there are two sets of vows in a wedding ceremony. The first is a list of questions that the officiant is asking, and it ends with the I do or the I will. This, you're facing the officiant during this time. This is because this is your vertical covenant. This is your commitment to God on this day. And then based on that covenant and that commitment, you then turn to your person and make a commitment and a covenant with each other on the foundation of your vertical covenant. You make the horizontal one between you and I. And this is not about our current love. We're not standing here talking about and making a commitment on our current love when you look beautiful and I look beautiful and everyone's beautiful and there's just so much emotion on that day. We're not talking about how we feel on that day. We're talking about our future love. We're talking about our future people. 
for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, I make this commitment, I make this vow to you. The wedding vows are an entrance into covenant. Notice there are the language. There isn't an unless or a but if. It's not a contract. In a contract, two parties agree on a working relationship as long as it's mutually beneficial. But in a covenant, you give up your freedom in faith. That true freedom is not the lack of constraint but rather it is the right kind of constraint. And inside the confines of a covenant, we become the kind of people who are actually free to love. A contract is based on what I want and what I need. A covenant is based on agape, a self-giving love, to put the good of another ahead of your own. In a contract, you have grounds to dissolve when that person stops stirring up those feelings of passionate love as they did in the beginning. In a covenant, you learn that passion comes and goes, but the love that is growing roots is far deeper than any passion could ever reach. I brought a picture uh, for us this morning to enjoy. Disclaimer, I don't know these people. I am the creeper that takes pictures of people when I don't know it in parking lot of Tulsa Hills. So about a month or so ago, um, I was in the parking lot of Tulsa Hills just trying to make my way out. And I just happened to kind of get behind these two lovely people. And it just started something in me in the moment. And so I just took a picture, snapped a picture, um, not to display to all of you, but just to uh, send to my husband. And so I just sent this picture to him. And some of you can probably guess maybe even the caption that I sent to him. I just sent this picture with hashtag goals. And I think the reason that this picture stirs these feelings up that I think you guys can all imagine what I was feeling at the time or what it makes you feel at the time is, be, is this. Like passionate love is so easy to get caught up in in the moment, but ultimately our deep desire looks a lot more like this. We say hashtag goals because we all understand and long for the depth that only comes through time and faithfulness, through ups and downs and struggles and joys and perseverance and all the things that life throws our way, actually living out the vows that we say on our wedding day and to continue to choose the same person over and over and over and over again and through all of that and still be holding hands while holding a cane and walking into Bed Bath & Beyond is stunning. It's beautiful. It's our heart's desire. The German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer captured this truth beautifully with this. He said, it is not your love that sustains your marriage, but the marriage that sustains your love. There is a security that flows from the covenantal perspective on marriage that we find in the Bible actually fuels and feeds the loving feelings that we long for in relationships. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller explains the benefits that flow from this perspective on marriage. The commitments provide this like cradle of security that sustains a couple through the ups and downs of life. It frees them up to be their true selves and where intimacy can really build and grow because commitment fuels true intimacy. 
And he goes on to say this, in promising, you limit your options now in order to have wonderful, fuller options later. You curb your freedom now so that you can be free to be there in the future for people who trust you. When you make a promise to someone, both of you know that you are going to be there with and for them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust within the jungle of unpredictability. This covenantal container is the only one strong enough to withstand life and love and sexual intimacy. This love, though passionate at times, is much, much deeper. And its main focus isn't feelings, but formation. And as always, when it comes to formation, it's not, are you being formed? It's what are you being formed into? And our pursuit is to be formed, to become more and more like Jesus, to be formed into people of love. And Jesus has a lot to say and a lot to show us about love, true love. 1 John 4.10 says this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is defined by the life and love of Jesus. Love that welcomes those on the margins. Love that washes the feet of those who are about to betray him. Love that calls us to forgive and to keep forgiving. A love that calls us to not only love those who love us back, but to love our enemies. A feeling and an action. And the defining love as an action the self-giving love of Jesus displayed on the cross. Love is a noun and a verb, an action and a feeling. Back to our passion definition of love. It is feeling-based and there's nothing wrong with that. Enjoy that, lean in. Romantic love is something to be celebrated. We are feeling creatures. We were created by God to feel all these, these things and romantic love was created by him as well and to be celebrated. He created it for us. It's just that feelings are fleeting and most of the time they can be selfish They are really centered on how I feel and what another does for me and what it stirs inside of me. Love, the action, the verb is a whole nother story. It's a whole nother layer and at its core, it is self-giving. It's placing the good of another ahead of your own. We see this displayed in Jesus and we turn and display this love through our marriage. Each love, the feeling and the action, fueling each other into something so deep and so beautiful. C.S. Lewis writes about Christian marriage in Mere Christianity and talked about this tendency in our culture to just move on to another relationship when you feel that you have, quote, fell out of love, only to realize that in the next one, the same fading feelings follow you into that relationship as well. And he goes on to write this. This, I think, is one little part of what Christ meant by saying that a thing will not really live unless it first dies. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. That is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. 
go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follow. And you will find you are living in a world of new thrill all of the time. This is a truth that has been tried and tested in my life. And one that I can stand here today and bear witness to its truth. After 22 years with the same person and 18 of those years married, we are living in the fruit of tested love. We have said from the stage and been transparent about the struggles of our first years of marriage. It was a battle. It was a war with emotions and questions and relearning everything we thought marriage was going to be and what marriage was going to look like. It was an unlearning and a relearning of what love meant to us. Our framework for passionate love disintegrated right before our eyes and all that was left was just a bunch of questions. And we asked all of the wrong questions. Did I do the right thing? Did I marry the right person? Did I marry too young and now miss the opportunity to do anything except for be unhappy the rest of my life, which is proving to be a long time because I got married when I was an actual teenager. Is this what my life is going to be now? And that's stirring all of these questions and that caused so much brokenness and big mistakes. Last year, we walk through kind of an aftershock wave of a few of those mistakes. And we stepped into some really intentional counseling to kind of walk through that time in our lives because we had never done that before. At the time, in, during those years, it was just like counseling was not even in our frame of reference. It was not anything that was normal. It was completely taboo. We would have never gone to counseling. And so we didn't process it in the way we should have. And so we were processing these things, these mistakes, and more specifically, my mistakes. And in the middle of processing a wound, in the middle of my complete brokenness and shame and guilt, I was gifted the most beautiful gift. My husband leaning in and loving me so completely and deeply and full of grace. I will never forget this moment. I struggle with grace. It's one of my bigger struggles. And if I'm honest, I pride myself on being the one in the room that never needs it. But in this moment, there was no escaping my need. And it was a wave of grace like I have never felt before. And I have had in my life, I'm blessed to have had some profound experiences with the Lord. But this was the most tangible experience with Jesus that I had ever had. It was like he was sitting in the room with me through Bodhi. This is the gift that only covenant love can bring. All the stuff on the table, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, fully known and fully loved.
the gift of true love. That is what true love looks like. Love as not just a feeling, but an action. Again, from Tim Keller. Y'all are lucky I narrowed it down to just two. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will ever transform us. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. This kind of choosing covenantal love of marriage forms us in ways that nothing else can. A choosing love that keeps choosing even when or maybe especially when we don't feel it. When you have experienced this kind of love, the myth of love as a feeling is easy to shatter. Will you stand with me this morning? As you prepare your communion elements this morning, we reflect on the love of Jesus. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And so if you would just close your eyes for a moment. And let's take a few moments before we receive communion, before we step into this space to just gaze on the love of Jesus, to let his love be our framework for love, to let his love and the way that he has loved us form us. This thing that we do every single week in receiving communion together. It's not about ritual. It's about formation. It's letting this, what we do, the remembrance of this, the centerpiece of our faith and letting it form every single part of us. Every single part of who we are and how we interact with other people and our relationships. And so we let his love put on display for us on the cross, form how we love one another.
God, we thank you for your body that was broken for us on the cross. And God, we take this bread that represents that body and we remember, we let it form us. Let's take the bread together. God, we take the cup and we remember your blood shed for us. Your love literally poured out on us and over us. He gazed upon you and your love. We remember today. Let's take the cup together. I just want to hold space for just a few more moments. To reflect and honestly just to let God meet you right where you are. For the spirit to do the work that only he can do in this place. I don't know where you are at in your life. But I know because of statistics, there's probably a lot of people in here really struggling with relationships right now. Really struggling with love right now. And so we just hold space for that. And God, we ask for you to come and meet us in that space, right where we are in our brokenness and our need for grace and our need to be able to show grace and to forgive and to keep forgiving, to keep choosing. God, would you strengthen us today? Would you strengthen hearts and lives in this place today? Would you come and do a healing work in our hearts to do the work that only you can do? Give us a glimpse of your love. Give us eyes to see our spouse in the way that you see our spouse. Give us ears to hear our spouse in the way that you hear them. Give us a vision of the future, God that times may be tough now, but our roots are growing deep and wide. This perseverance is producing something inside of us that cannot be produced any other way. Give us a vision of what that future love is gonna look like when we stick it out, when we don't give up, when we don't give in. 
grow us, form us, strengthen us, meet us. And we just lean back and let you carry any weight that we're not supposed to be carrying. If we are weary, you are the one who can carry it all. So we hold up our weary hands to you and we offer it back to you. You are good and we trust that you are good, no matter what the circumstances may look like. Thank you, Jesus. God, I thank you for what you are going to do in and through our lives and through the relationships in our lives. God, not only today, but throughout this whole series, Lord, open up our hearts, open up our hearts to new ideas and thoughts. Form us. Let that be our lens and our prayer. Form us ever and always. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite our prayer team, any of our uh, staff or elders and prayer team that are in the room, if you would come down to the front. If you have a need um, or something going on in your life that you would really like for someone to agree with you and pray with you and over you, um, that's what these people are down here to do. So stop by and chat with them on your way out. Again, happy Mother's Day, ladies. Don't forget to get your sweet treat um, on the way out and grab a picture. Uh, Let's end with our mission statement and go live it out wherever you are. Be the gospel. Have a great week.